Welcome to the Irrational Discourse Podcast. Fair warning, the topics we discuss may be sensitive subjects for some listeners. Since we try to look at each subject from different perspectives, the views expressed during each episode will, at times, invariably differ from our own. Our intent is not to change what you believe, only to influence how you think. And looking at something from a completely different perspective is one way of doing just that. If we want to live in a prosperous and harmonious society, we believe that it's important to be able to openly, rationally, and non-judgmentally discuss our differences. All we need is a little love, mutual respect, and an open mind to get us through. With that, let's begin. to the Irrational Discourse Podcast. This is episode one, Oh God, part one. And we are here with author Peter James, who is the uh, author of the book, God is Great, a Bible rebuttal to Christopher Hitchens. And we're, we're, we're happy to have you here, um, Peter. And of, of course, I'm with my co-host, Chris. Hello, hello. Hello. Welcome to the show. Good evening. Yeah. So, so I'm an old, I'm an old sports guy. I, you know, I was in the military. Nobody ever called me Doug. Um, I was always Sherman. Your name, I, I made the mistake. I think when for, I kept calling you James Peters. So is it, is it, is it Peter? I've referred to you as Mr. James. Uh, I, I go by James. I, uh, Peter James is my pen name. Okay. But I, I go by James. Great. Cause it's a, it's an easy one to remember. Yeah. So welcome to the show, and we wanted to get you on uh, for our audience. Uh, you and I met um, in a driveway. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah. Very true. And yeah. It was well, enjoyable. What made you come across the street? I mean, I mean I was, we were just digging around. You were walking, and I, I think yeah. I was moving my daughter uh, out of the house. You were the doing that, day. and you were washing the car, I think, at, at the same time. And I just saw you guys out, so I strolled across the street to say hi. Yeah, and Being I think gregarious. you were very gregarious. <laughs> yeah, very gregarious and very charming. Um, and I think the thing that really intri- intrigued me the most, uh, for full disclosure, is after I think after we talked like five or ten minutes, you start talking scripture, and my I, I don't want to say defense mechanisms, but I. I start getting uh, the hair went up on the back of your neck. Well, you started yeah, getting but, bristly, but but not, not <laughs> but not not out of any high level of anxiety. It was more of a, a warning. It's like I got to be I got to be careful what I say, you know. So I wanted to be polite. I didn't want to be disrespectful. But halfway through the conversation, you mentioned that you were a fan of Christopher Hitchens, who happened to be one of the four horsemen of atheism. And, and I have been a huge fan of his for 12, 13 years now, and it, I was absolutely fascinated at that point. Yeah, no, I think this, if anybody listens to his debates, reads his book, reads any of his books, he has such a command of the English language, and he's, he's just, he seems, with all that knowledge, when you, when you listen to his friends, they, they say, he thinks you know what he knows, but you really don't know what he knows. He's, you know, so he's been, he's pretty humble about all of that. It, it's just, I mean, I, I, I started uh, following him since 1981 when he first got to the country. He was on a William Buckley show a lot. So I would follow him then. I just found him fascinating. Uh, how, how he could have a mind that recalls all the things that, that he can recall from books that he's read. It, it's just, to me, 
I can't get my brain to work. So it's, it's mind boggling to me. No. And we, uh, another thing, yeah, we've talked about this as well because I read a book. I remember most of it until I read my next book. Yeah. And, and when I was reading fiction a lot in my younger days, it seemed like, uh, you know, I was reading, uh, all sorts of mysteries and different books, but then they all started to kind of Coalesce. I couldn't remember if it was, am I reading about, did I just read this or whatever? And so I had to switch. I had to get away from, from reading those type of novels. It just seems like everything was together. Kind of becoming a blur. Yeah. Except for Confederacy of Dunces by Cool. <laughs> that wasn't a blur. I, I really enjoyed that book. That's a great book. And Caleb Carr, The Alienist, that was one of my favorite all-time books that I tell people to read. I don't know if you've read that book or... Unfortunately not. No, uh, I, I need... I'm historically not the biggest reader. Uh, it's really just because I'm such a slow reader. Um, I like to make sure I'm importing the information correctly and really understanding it. And I, I usually just don't end up making the time because most of my efforts uh, with my profession require me to be mentally and physically and visually at the disposal of my craft and uh, rarely I get to read. Usually it's just audio music or something on the background. Audiobooks are great though. Yeah, no, audiobooks no. really help me. And I'm still young, so I got a lot, long, long way to go, you know, getting all those great points into my brain. Well, I, I was dyslexic when I was in school and oh yeah, uh, it was difficult for me to read. I'll read down a line. I'll be on the next line down or up a line. So I really have to stop and force myself to read something. I'm kind of a similar way. Yeah. Um, I'll get there. When I was in business, I, I read all the contracts and they're really from a different world when you read Oh, like attorney. contractual language. Yeah. They yeah. are, yes. And so, But I'd force myself to read those. <laughs> Strangely and, enough, I've read a lot of those too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See where the kick's going to come from. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> well, I don't like that line. <laughs> yeah, that's not a good one. So obviously we, we know that you have a, a great interest in studying scripture. Uh, but tell us a little bit about your background you know, and you know, how how you evolved into who you are today and what led you down the road into being such a devout follower and, and student of Scripture? It's an excellent question because I've put 40 years towards this subject. And when I was young, my father, my real father, left before I was born. So I think, in a way, I was always looking for my father. You know, that was the process in my heart to find to find my father. And so I, at a young age, at six years old, I was dropped off at the Baptist uh, Sunday school classes and went there. And then uh, two years later, at eight years old, I was baptized, not knowing why, but that's just what you did. And uh, didn't learn very much from the Bible at all. Uh, learned a lot of man-made doctrines, the stuff that... Uh, uh, Christopher rebelled against, you know, if, if he was just, if he would have just learned the truth from the Bible from the beginning, he, he'd been a, a, a great witness for anybody, you know, but he didn't. And uh, he just learned all of man-made rules and the hype that you, when you read his book, he's, he explains it quite well. And so I left the, that church uh, at around age nine and didn't, I went to some churches with friends and things of that sort. And then after that, 
my next door neighbor was Catholic. So I started attending the Catholic church and I, I got their little red book and I, I started going through their catechism or their learning all about Catholicism. In a way, besides not finding God there, I went to this church. It must have had 400 people in the church. And I never met one person. Nobody came up to me. I was just by myself. I was in there. I didn't understand. You know, you were supposed to tap your heart. I, I didn't know any of the rituals. You didn't know the norms. I didn't know the norms. I was standing when they were kneeling, and I was kneeling when they were standing. And I, I just didn't see it. And I started reading their, their book, and I just... It wasn't there. I couldn't find it. So I left that and uh, went went to just different churches with friends and stuff. There was a boy in high school that we were friends, and he was a Mormon. So he asked me to come to his church. So I started going to Mormon church, and I started studying their book. And uh, I had already had a basis of the Bible before that. And so when I started looking at their rituals and the things that they were doing, I had to agree with Christopher on that. That that religion <laughs> was not really close to what the Bible taught, so I, I couldn't go there. And then after that, I kind of gave up a little bit on organized religion. I had, if friends invited me to a, a particular church, I'd go, to, go there to the church, but I really, you know, kind of left off. I had kind of had my own philosophy by then and didn't really study the Bible, though. And so it was later that I started thinking, you know, do I, there's 200,000 churches out there that claim to be Christian, that claim to use the Bible. Uh, it, it goes up to a pyramid and there's six at the top and they claim to use the Bible, but they all teach different things. Do I, do I learn all of that or, or do I start studying the Bible and then kind of look around and see really who's following it? Who? Who's doing that? Almost so. formulate your own method, your own way. Uh, well, I, I, I didn't. I didn't think I had a way. It, mm -hmm. it, it, it seemed broken. Now, had you already read the Bible before? You know, you were going to these churches. Uh, no, I, I, I was. I read parts of it. I never. I never. I studied parts of it, but I never read the the Bible cover to cover. I only started that. Oh, I don't know. Twelve years ago, I started reading it cover to cover, and the first time that I was reading the Bible, I I felt kind of like one-upsmanship. I would tell people, I'm reading the Bible cover to cover or something if we got into a, a talk, like Ray for me, behind, yeah, yeah. <laughs> behind the <laughs> And then I started running into people go, yeah, I read it every year. Oh, I read it seven times. I, you know, and then all of a sudden I got real humble. Okay, huh, uh -huh. <laughs> I'm not going to say that anymore. <laughs> you know, there's so many people out there that are doing what they're supposed to be doing, reading that book. The whole idea behind my book, when, you know, after uh, going through Christopher's book, was, you know, he does a splendid job on on why man-made religion uh, is a turnoff. You know, with all the the, the man-made uh, doctrines and things that have nothing to do with the Bible. All the extra stuff. Yeah, the stuff that you you really don't need to know. And well, well, just and again, I mean, pardon the language, but you and I had touched upon this last week, and I think you'd made the comment, and I made the comment. It's like, why can't you just stop all the fuckery? Oh yes, because there's a whole <laughs> lot of that that goes on in, in it, the various churches. Yeah, it's a, well, as soon as you hear in in my book, I point out. As soon as you hear somebody go, well, I think God, oh, so I, I believe I believe God said, 
Yes. Anytime that they do that, they, they don't have to do that. There's a scripture in there that'll tell you exactly what he thinks about whatever you're thinking about. Get the scripture and quote it and look at it. Because you don't need to be telling, them, telling people what you think God's going to do. And that was one of the big uh, things with Christopher. He, he, he goes, these people that, that tell you they know the mind of God, you know, give me a break. So he's absolutely correct on that. I think most atheists, and me being, I, sir, you, you've referred to me a few times tonight as, a, as an agnostic, and I'm, I'm offended. I'm, I am a full-blown mugwump. As you would call oh. it, <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of unfair. <laughs> so, in in, in the book, I, I got uh, that term because I I like David Belinsky. Oh know, yes, yes. And and David, he'll he'll fight all the way about the Bible and how bad uh, evolution is, but when you pin him down, he won't say anything about a creation or a creator. You know, other than uh, bits of the Bible that he quotes. But, well, I, I actually, I'm, I'm not a big fan of Berlinski. I mean, he's great. I, I, I don't have anything against him. And so he's a pretty it's not, smart lad. He's a very smart guy. I think, I, I just, I don't know. I'm, I'm still, the, the jury's still out with him. But the one thing that I do is he has no problem with saying, I don't know. And I, I think that's one of the big things that, and not just Christopher Hitchens, but Daniel Dennett and Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins. I think that's one of the things, and myself, is when somebody says, I know, and it's an absolute. And that, and that's where a lot of it's like, how can you say, you know, the church is the one that says they know what nobody else knows, and they're the key holders you're never to the get secrets to of God. You're, and, unless you're in our church. You know? Exactly. <laughs> and I, I think that's a lot of it. And yeah. You know, I've listened to probably every you know, Christopher Hitchens debate out there, and in ninety percent of them, he brings up that specific point on the side of religion that knows what nobody else knows, and you just need to go to them for the information, and they'll tell you exactly how you should oh, yeah. believe and how you should oh, act, yeah. how you're going to get to heaven. And this was the other thing that absolutely. So you you took me off guard twice um, when we first met. The first. You know, when you start talking scripture, it didn't take me off guard. I grew up in Texas. A lot of people talk scripture in Texas. Um, you know, there's a, there's a huge Southern Baptist uh, population in Southern in, in Texas. And but when you mentioned that you were a fan of Christopher Hitchens, that was the first one that took me back. And the second is when you also mentioned your uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth, and I don't want to say disdain, but your uh, your dislike or your skepticism over um, man-made religion, organized religion, and 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 that's when I think our conversation really clicked because um, I felt a connection to you at this point. And that definitely well, turns me when on I, too. If we go back, and when I was going to the Catholic Church, and I told you there was four hundred people in there, not one of them had a Bible, not one. Huh. No, but they had the little books of songs that they'll sing through because I had to do that for. Uh, so I, you know, so here and I'm digressing and I want to get back to you. But so the Church of England, the Anglican Church, unlike the United States, there is no separation of church and state in the UK. The you know, the, the the state is the head of the Anglican Church. Um, Christopher had to go to that church. Christopher had to go to that church. But there's an interesting phenomena that you go through. And my my son was born in the UK. And in the area where we had moved into, a, a, it was a beautiful area on the coast of uh, southern UK and Bournemouth, the schools were horrific. 
the ratings were some of the lowest in the UK. There was a lot of discontent uh, within the faculty. But there was a Church of England school, which was one of the higher rated schools in England. And the C of E schools in, in the UK are known for being very good schools. And it was a beautiful school. It was in the middle of the woods. It looked like something out of uh, you know, Robin Hood. or, or yeah, It was just an old white stone building. And it was you know, early 19th, late 18th century construction. The only way to get in there is if you could be approved by the church. So for about a year, I was a devout attendee to the Anglican church. And after every Sunday when, when, the, when the session was over, I had to go stand in a line with all the other potential parents for like 20, 30 minutes just so I could get up to the staff and sign my name and say, yes, I was here this weekend. And then when I applied to get my son into the school a year, you know, 13 months later, they went back and counted how many times I'd attended the church. And that's part of the process. He got in, but that's part of the process to get so that was my probably the longest stint with organized religion, and I did it for my son. But I can tell you, I dreaded Sundays for <laughs> for thirteen months. It was um, it's an interesting experience. Hmm. Well, that that's I was leading up to the impetus on on writing the book, and it was watching one of the debates with Christopher with Denise Denish. Dinesh D'Souza. D'Souza, I don't know how to pronounce it. Yeah, Dinesh D'Souza. But he, uh, Dinesh gave a long-winded answer that started off with, I think. He gives a lot of, I think, long-winded answers. Yeah, so he gave a long-winded answer, and Christopher just cringed at the end of it and said, why doesn't anybody just debate me with Scripture? I'd have more respect for him. So I was that, he, he, he told me that, and I thought, I can do that. So I started really going back through all of his his different, uh, going through his debates to find out what was his main bone of contention each time and writing them down. And then then that's what my book does. It, it answers scripturally, just from the Bible, those particular things that he talks about. And I think if, you know, and I thought, well, I'll, I'll write this for atheists. I'll write it for agnostics. It's not for a person that's comfortable and thinks they have the truth. It's for people that were turned off by organized Christian religions. And uh, because I don't have any uh, disagreement with his book, his book secularly tells you all the atrocities that are done in the name of religion. But what he doesn't have is a good grasp of the Bible. If you read my book and you look up the scriptures— you'll have a fairly good grasp of what the Bible really teaches. And, and I guarantee everybody out there that will read the book, there'll be a scripture that they've never seen before. They might have read the Bible cover to cover, but the same with me. I, I read it every year. I go through it. Uh, I read five chapters every morning. I go through it 8.6 months, and then I start over again. And each time I read it, there's something new. I, I kind of talk about it being like James Joyce and Finnegan's Wake, and you need somebody to translate that book. It, it's very difficult to understand. The Bible's a little easier. You don't have to be a college student. In fact, the people that wrote the book were fishermen, carpenters. Or, as we talked earlier, they were also the uh, some of the, the rabbis or the leaders that were running the temple at the time as well. Yeah, we were chatting a little the, bit over dinner, uh, just I to get our the, audience. I think those were up. the copyists, but actual, the persons that wrote the books, 
there were the judges and the people that were sent to the Israelites to tell them to get back, to start turning around. Those people, uh, Isaiah, different people like that, they wrote their books. Can we, Can because we, I wanted to bounce a timeline off of you, because this is what I have, from a secular historical perspective, and my understanding is that took place, the actual, the final formation of the first five books of Exodus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, Genesis. The first five books. The yeah. Pentateuch. Pen, exactly. I almost said exactly. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> I caught myself. <laughs> um, a word that, whisker. Yeah, it's exactly. A word whisker. So you that, said exactly. <laughs> exactly. Okay. So that, that was somewhere around uh, between the 5th and the 6th century BCE. Well, Moses started writing the five books of the, the first five books of the Bible in the wilderness when they were in. The 40 years that they spent in the wilderness, that's when he wrote those books. And that was 1530 BCE. And then uh, he also wrote some of the Psalms, and he wrote uh, Job, the book of Job. So those are the books that are attributed to, to Moses. Okay. Uh, so, so go ahead. No, it was just that I had understood that it was around 15 BCE is when the first books were being written, but they had reached their final guess, ready draft copy around the 5th to 6th century BCE. And that's, again, that's from a historic, a secular historical Well, Daniel was so. the 5th century before, you're talking about BCE, right? before our Christian era, uh, Daniel's, I think, was 1530, or uh, 530, 530 years before Christ. And there's other ones. Isaiah was 700 years before Christ, and... Uh, I, I don't know all the all the no 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 I was I was, just, up, I was trying to get they're available I, but I just wanted to make sure that we weren't talking past each other at some point I wanted to make we were at least in that time frame of between the fifth century and the fifteenth fifteenth century BCE is when the first five books and the remainder of the Old Testament was either being written but the first five books at least had been uh, solidified I guess is the word I'm looking for uh, well they were copying them all the time but they were copying them on paper that or papyrus and mm. things that just dissipated, you know. But today they found fragments from everything. There's so much convincing evidence mm. today that wasn't here a hundred years ago. So, but that being said, it started 1530 BCE and it ended the 100 years within within after Christ died. And I apologize. I have, I have like eleven pages of my own personal notes and thoughts and questions. So if you hear papers ruffling, but I, I had some things that I, you know, wanted to ask you as as we're getting through. Is you've covered what led to your interest, and I've mentioned to you that I've made three attempts at writing books before. I failed miserably all three times. It takes a lot of determination. There's a, a lot of work that goes into doing it. Just to, I know what it's like sometimes to get up at you know, 5.30 in the morning and you get behind the computer and you stare at the blinking cursor for 30 minutes and you're just like, oh, I don't want to do this today. So. Especially, I'm such a poor speller that I have to look up almost every word. Microsoft there. Word's also. <laughs> it, it tells you when you screw it up. So, yeah, well, it, it, it doesn't tell you all the time. Sometimes it lets you screw up if you spell it right for the wrong word. Um, I, I, so. also, I also, t it took five years before I published the book. 
in all honesty, there was probably two and a half years of procrastination. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to. I'm going to get down on that lower 40, and I'm going to plant that corn. With me. But I, 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 have it, I have it sitting on the table right in front of us. So you all did right. It. You, I, did it. Uh, <laughs> you did it. I made it. <laughs> was there anything that you would have changed about the book now that it's that you're done and you look back? and? Uh, you know, I, uh, I, it was the best I could do at the time, the, the very best I could do. And... Um, I I did the research and I had uh, there's a list of people in the beginning that I had helped me. I mean, you can have people correct your spelling, you can have people correct your punctuation, they can put things in the right order. You can have people do that for you and you can pay them and it's not very much and they can fix that. There is nobody that knows their bible out there. <laughs> it's a, mm-hmm. it, it, you know, if I'm if I've quoted something wrong like I made a mistake right in the beginning uh, I had Isaiah, or not Isaiah, Jeremiah 10.23 is a scripture that I use right in the beginning of the book. And that is that it's not in man to guide his own footsteps. And we can see that by all the different governments and the things that have... We seem to put up a stop sign after there's an accident. We don't seem to get there before that time. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly, exactly what we do, yes. <laughs> so, uh, and I, I had it down at 11.47 or 1047 that was written. And of all people, my brother goes, how about 647? You're off by 400 years. Oh my. <laughs> so uh, that was a big mistake, but my brother's, uh, he studies more than I do. So That's, That was going to be my question is your, your family. Did your family, did you have a lot of involvement from, from siblings or family and, and working in the book or? No, I actually, I got my brother studying the Bible, but he just, he grabbed hold of it more than I did. So, so I, I, I wanted some help with Scripture. There was several uh, people that I went to that I knew that studied their Bible, and they helped me with, with different things that I made mistakes. Like, there are some things in there now that I catch in the book that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get it fixed. But, like, for instance, there, there's nothing in there that you would see you would notice, you know, as a, as a layman studying the book, but I see I made a mistake. Like, for instance, I capitalize H when I'm talking about God, mm-hmm. his this, or he did this, that's a capital H. So I, I found where I made a small H, you know, but you won't mm-hmm. catch that if you're reading it. it. It won't bug you, but it bugs me. So mm-hmm. I'll get that fixed. And then there's another one in there where I went to somebody that really, I thought they really knew their Bible. And I said, I, I want to put down, f- there was only five good kings that ruled Israel out of the 41 or whatever it was that ruled Israel. There, there was only five that were good or counted as good kings. And he said, no, there was only four. So there was five. Hmm. So I've got to fix that. But okay. you're not going to know that when you read it. You're going to go, really? Was there four? You know? And if you look it up, there's five, maybe even six, who knows? But I doubt it. I think it's right around five. That's what I wanted to put anyway. Well, it's good. I mean, it's reconciling your own work, you know I mean? Yeah, I, but the rest of it, by and large, I'm, I'm happy with. If, if I tell people not only to buy the book, but get your Bible and look up every scripture. Right in the beginning, in the, in the introduction, I tell them, look up every scripture, even if it's quoted. Look it up. Look at it. Make sure your Bible says what it's saying there. So I really emphasize that. That's the whole idea. Is writing this book is to get people to get into their Bibles and start seeing it. There had to be. We were talking about this earlier, but there had to be 
a first generation. Adam and Eve certainly was that. There also has to be a last generation. I believe we're living in that, that time period. You know, we don't know the day or the hour, but we see the seasons. We see this world the way it is. Well, and that's to say, like, that what if time isn't linear, though? I mean, there, what if there isn't a beginning and an end? What if they're this one and the same, perhaps? God makes a promise in there that he's not going to allow this to go on. Hmm. He's allowed a certain time for man to work out his all of his governments to do whatever he can. He's allowed that that angelic creature to run the world, do it his way. Yeah. That, that is not going to last. In, in chapter uh, 4, I think it is in the book, I talk about that, and I give some analogies to look at. Yeah, we were talking a little bit over dinner, and uh, you had referenced The Great Bamboozler. That's my upcoming book. Yes. One of these days, oh, I'm going to get down that lower 40, and I'm going to plant that corn. Yeah, you'll get there. <laughs> no, <laughs> but, but that's got, what you're referencing is... The, yeah, yes. The Great Bamboozler. Yeah, he runs this show. God's not running this show. But you just said something that, interesting. that I found intriguing was you said that you thought, and it was in my notes, that's why I, I, I recalled it, you, you said that you thought that we're living in those times today. The times of the bamboozler. The time of the bamboozler. No, the bamboozler. No, the, time, been... the time of the end. The end. Oh, yeah, okay. When we, when we pray for God's government to come, I, I'd like to finish that thought with the God's government we pray for. Jesus said in Matthew uh, 6, 9, and 10, when you pray, pray this way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be their name. Make, make your name known. Second thing you pray for is God's government that's in heaven to also come to this earth and rule. And then I ask the question in the book, if like Christopher, we're all going to hell or we're all going to heaven, why are we praying for God's government to come to this earth? Why are we doing that? Maybe there's something else. Maybe, Maybe there there's is. something different. Yeah, could that be like an insight into, into something more? It, it definitely is. That government's coming to this earth, and he's going to put it in uh, Daniel, uh, Daniel 2.44. If you look up that scripture, it says that in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. It will never be brought to ruin. It will crush and put an end to all the governments or all the kingdoms of the earth, and it will stand till time indefinite. That time is coming. Daniel said, if you look in Daniel, um, Daniel was, saw these visions, and he was asking God, tell me what this is. What am I seeing? Why, why am I seeing this? If you look up Daniel, I think it's 12, 4, and 9, the angel tells Daniel, seal up the book. It's not going to be known by you until the time of the end. And then that knowledge will come about. So he couldn't understand it back then or how it applied. But we understand it today. We see how that applies today. I'm, I'm just trying to get people to get in their Bible. And that's what my book does. That's why this brought up a couple of other notes that I had taken. Um, Matthew, and I didn't write the specific verse, and I'm sorry, I'm really bad at note-taking. But Matthew prophesied that Jesus would return in the lifetime of his followers, which obviously didn't come to pass. In Mark, Jesus prophesied or predicted that the end of the earth and the signs leading up to its end, which he said would happen during his generation and the generation to the masses to which he was speaking, would happen in his lifetime, which also didn't come to pass. So I... I Chris and I have talked about this a lot of times. It's a, I, yeah, I'm still relatively young. I have lived through 
a dozen end of days uh, scenarios in that. Doug, time, your so. question is excellent, though. It's it's excellent, and I think a lot of people see that same thing. There's something's wrong here, but you have to understand that there's a twofold, twofold end to the prophecy. He was speaking about uh, the conclusion of Jerusalem that it was that no, there wasn't going to be a stone left upon a stone that that was going to end. And he was also talking about the conclusion of the system of things that's talking about our time. So it's, it's both those. And if you read Matthew 24, he talks about his disciples come to him. What will be the signs? What will be the, the sign of the conclusion of things? And he starts telling them in Matthew 24, if you read that. Uh, and I would suggest right away that your audience gets an up-to-date translation and don't use the Bibles from yesterday because they've been, they've in the last 100 years, they've found so many things that make a translation today so much better. And in my book, I, I tell them about a professor in Arizona, David Bedoon. Debune. Jason David. Jason, Jason. Yeah, Jason David Bedoon, a professor in uh, Tucson. That's where I'm from. I love Just originally. Yeah. I love Tucson. Born and raised there. I love Tucson. I think, I think he's with Arizona State. Mm. Okay, I don't know. Is it, uh, isn't Tucson. that in Tucson? <laughs> I, I don't think know. Arizona State's outside of Phoenix, but I could be wrong. What do I know? I don't. I never lived in Arizona. Arizona State's up in Phoenix. University of Arizona's down in Tucson. Big time rivalry. Yeah. It might be, because I think Larry Taunton is University of Tucson. I don't know. You, I don't know either. I don't know. Either. But all I know is... He studied the, the top 17 most popular Bibles that are used around the world, and he graded them all, and then he tells you what is the best translation. A lot of people don't understand what a version and a translation are. A version is a copy of somebody else's translation. It's not a translation. A translation is when you go back to the original text and you translate it into our language, language today, the language today. And some well, of the things that you were referencing, you're talking about like the Dead Sea Scrolls that were discovered you, like you, in the all, 40s or something? All of those. You, you have, there's so much today that they've unearthed. It's, it's unbelievable. So, But there's actual, there's, there's four different types of translations. There is, there's a word for word translation. Yes. And on those you have the King James, the New King James, the North American Standard Bible, uh, the English Standard Version, and then there was one other. Um, you have meaning for meaning, and you have thought for thought translations, uh, in which case the, the translators do their best to convey the thought and the meaning of the original text into what they think people would understand. And there, you and I had talked about the God's Word uh, Bible one time, and that, I think that's the one that the, Je the Jehovah's Witnesses uh, use I, I don't know, but don't know. but that's that's one of the versions, and then there is also a paraphrased uh, translation where they they try to paraphrase, and there's there's pros and cons to each one, and yeah, I think there's three. That's what I understand that there's three. There's there's a word for word that's over here. Um, well, the meaning for meaning, thought for thoughts, kind of lumped into one category. Uh, somebody who's a little bit more pedantic would separate the two, but I lumped them together into three. Yeah, and then there's kind of the middle of the road where they give you, uh, they, they, they write the text and they get the feeling of what, what was supposed to be the text and that's the Bibles that I think are probably the best, especially if they have, you know, they want to do the very best job 
they're representing the creator of the university. Yeah, well, yes. and <laughs> They're not is, trying to pull anything off. This is some of the issues that I've struggled with. And my, my very first thought was that, and a lot of my research ended up supporting my, my concerns, was that the word-for-word -word translation, even though it sounds like it would be the most accurate, could tend to be the one that was more fraught with errors. And that's simply because I know we exchange this. It's... I, I have a customer in Norway and him and I had this conversation and it was, I said, tell me, is this urban myth or not? Are there really 180 words for snowball in Nor or for snow in Norway? And he was explaining to me about the indigenous people of Norway. And yes, that's about right. There's around 180 words for snow. So if you're translating something from one language to another, and there's five meanings for a word in one language, but only one in another that you're translating it into, this is where you run into the exegetical errors that we discussed, or vice versa. One of the one of the things that I found is that translating it from Hebrew into other languages was a challenge because the Hebrew language has a much smaller vocabulary than most languages around the world, but they'll have multiple meanings for the same word. Um, so that was my concern with the word for word. The meaning. I, I'm for me hardly a scholar, so I don't I don't yeah, know how to correct you, you on anything. No, and I'm, I'm not like, I'm not looking for you know to be. I I could be wrong, and I'm, I'll fully admit that. But that that's my personal opinion. Uh, meaning for meaning, thought for thought would kind of be what I would go for. But then that leads that opens up the door to more subjectivity, and paraphrasing. I I paraphrase everything all the time, and I know how often I get it wrong. So I would be skeptical of anything that was paraphrased. I, I just think if people are going to study the Bible, it would be good to get the, the very best one they can, you know, the very best. How do we know which one's the best one? Who Who is God's arbiter on earth for deciding who has the right translation or understanding of Scripture? Or is it up to the individual? You know, maybe we read all three of them. All 50. All 50 of them. Yeah. Oh, I meant... There's around uh, 50 translations of yes. the Bible. Or 50, oh, I see. There's, there's around... Fit, no, I'm sorry, not 50 translations there. You'll know more than me. The Bible's been translated into... how It's more languages than any other book ever Oh, written. it's close to 3,000. Yeah, it's crazy wow. how many. But there are around 50 different... Like the King James, the New King James, the God's Words, the North and, American... And this, the, were, the, this, this is why I, I, I recommend... Jason David Badoon, because he's a pro, he, he, he's non-denominational guy that went after, all right, let's see who's most accurate. And he took the 17 top Bibles around the world, and then he started doing his research. And so I tell him, it's called Truth in Translation, get the book and learn what he has to say and pick up a Bible. Yeah, but thing. is that saying that Jason is God's arbiter on earth of which, for, which, which translation is correct? Uh, I... A big thing for me. This is, I don't know about mm -hmm. if he is or he isn't. All is, I'm saying this is, is where I, get I thought it. it was a good work that he did. No, and I and, and I am not disparaging um, Mr. Debune in any way because I saw many had nothing but high praise for his work uh, that he did and strongly recommended his book uh, to the masses. I also saw biblical theologians who thought he got it all wrong. Who would I look to? And that's kind of well those theologians that that are touting their particular church or their religion or whatever they're... We have to look for ulterior motives to what you're saying. <laughs> is what is the ulterior motive in the criticism? Uh, then we could go back to... Key. We could go back to Christopher's book, God is Not Great, and learn about those religions. 
a big one for me in situations like this is looking for the common denominator. You know, when you're pulling in massive amounts of information and it's all translated from, you know, different stuff, how does the individual come to understand that or to know what's true or more accurate? For me personally, I would want to ideally read them all. Uh, and then find the common denominator. But realistically, do I have the time to do that? I already told you, I, I, I barely have the time to read at all. But, uh, you know, if this is important information that we should all, you know, be exposed to, how, what's, what's the best course of action? Do we trust our own intuition? You know, is that God speaking to us? Uh, I, I had a gentleman around the time I was 26, and I had that question. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had sage wisdom. And he asked me, well, you got 200,000 out there that claim to be Christian and claim to use the Bible as the crux of the religion. How do you find the needle in the haystack? Yeah. You know? Well, he said, why don't you study the Bible and then look around and see who's following it? Mm -hmm. Wouldn't that make sense to you that it'd be like putting a match to the haystack and the only thing that's left is the needle after all the hay is gone? Um so I thought, you know, that makes sense. I'm going to start reading the Bible and studying it. So that's what I've been doing for off and on for 40 years. As long as they don't take your advice and go around and start burning down churches. Sure. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Peter <sure>. James said. <laughs> yeah. I heard it on a podcast. Yeah, I heard it on a podcast. He said that. No, I, I'm definitely not saying that. I'm not saying that, but I am saying for people to get into their Bible and start reading it and this time to the end. Let's look at the 66 books. Let's, let's look at what they have to say. If they make sense, great. If it's not, then you've, you've done that and then move on. But uh, I really think this is the time to, to know this information. And that was the part of the impetus for writing this. I thought actually Christopher did a great job on the secular history of religion. So there was no need for me to go into that. What I thought is I'm going to give him the stuff he left out which was the Bible part. You know, he, he he was basically ruined by what he learned, and he just accepted that as man-made religion. was That's that's what it's about, but it's the Bible doesn't teach those things. Yeah, I think I think what really set him on his ways, he, I believe he was around nine years old. I think one of the things that he struggled with is he was too damn smart for his own good at nine years old. And <laughs> that he, may be true. <laughs> he had a he had a teacher um, in his his school um, that he was really fond of. In fact, until the day she, she died, according to him, and she was a nature teacher. She yes, and she started explaining things to him on why things were beautiful to the eye and it was God's will. And he just, at the age of nine, it clicked that this woman's full of shit. And, and then he started looking around at other things. And I, he's an, he was a natural skeptic at an early age. And he was also very cognitively gifted. And I think it was those two combinations that really started having him look at not just his own religion, but at all religions on, you know, what is the... I believe you're correct. Yeah. Oh. And, uh, and, well, he should. And he wrote a great book. The problem is he didn't have a basis. His, his knowledge of the Bible uh, was taught to him by the very 
church is rebelling against, and, and rightly so. He's not taught the truth. That would have been a struggle for him because I think with him, along with uh, Richard Dawkins and many others uh, that don't recognize the authority of the Bible as a source of truth, it's hard to use that as a tool against them in any kind of debate. Well, that's what Christopher asked for, and that's why I, I wrote the book. Right. I, I have 11 chapters in the book, and I look at them. It's definitely a David and Goliath story <laughs> when it comes to education. He's the Goliath. But I went through the riverbed, and I picked up 11 smooth stones for my slingshot. You specifically and, picked out some of his arguments and went straight after him. With, yeah, with, 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 Bible, with Bible text and stuff that he wasn't taught. In his church, he was taught the opposite of those things, and uh, I could see why he would rebel against that. I rebelled against it as well. So this is one of the things that, that, that's bothered me for a long time. Growing up in Texas, again, it's a challenge, and in, in many other—I'll many, take one of those. You got it. We're passing beers around, sorry, to break the train of thought. We have priorities here. <laughs> uh, the, it's like a beer. So one of the things— we, yes, we learn things um, you know, over time, and one of the things that we now know, I mean, neuroscience is a fairly new science. Uh, it's evolved more in the past 20 years than it's evolved in the previous 200,000 years, obviously. And we know that the, the frontal cortex that, that develops the, the analytical portion of our brain, where we use deductive reasoning, critical thinking uh, functionalities uh, to really analyze the data that we receive, and then to try to work with logic, reason, rational thought processes to come up with a conclusion or our own conclusion. That doesn't really form until, completely form till we're around the age of 25. I think I said somewhere that I think mine formed when I was 38. Um, but yeah, but for most people, it's around 25 years old. And there are a lot of children below the, younger than what Christopher Hitchens was when he was skeptical that are getting these full-blown courses on what God or who God really is and what God really believes and how they should believe when they're five, six, seven years old. I had a children's Bible at five. I used to read it all the time. So I grew up with this embedded thought process, and I didn't have the capability to analytically or rationally absorb that information. That just basically goes straight to your uh, to your basal ganglia, to your primal functions, to your emotional system, and it becomes a, a core belief and, and once something becomes a core belief, it's hard to pull out of somebody. Absolutely. And it was hard for me. It was it's actually sad because it, uh, in, in Israel, back in Israel's day, if you look at, uh, I think it's Deuteronomy 6, they talk about inculcating the law all the time, inculcating the knowledge about God all the time, right, but right from the source. Uh, today, we have the Bible— and that's our only source of really getting to know. There's 31,000 scriptures. Why make up anything? Why, why do that? Inculcate God's thoughts. Get his thought on that matter. I mean, I, I, I looked at, I, for the podcast, I was studying the creative days. I was studying Noah and the ark, uh, how big it was. I mean, just that alone I, I put me back on the subject when I stray off, but I was just thinking about when you go to the evangelist, uh, these parks that they put up. Oh, they, well, there was Ken Ham's Park in Kentucky. They, they show they, they show they... the ark as a boat. They show it as a big boat. 
The ark wasn't a big boat. It wasn't going anywhere. It didn't need a rudder. It wasn't heading anywhere. It just needed to stay afloat and it needed to stay upright. It was a chest. The, 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 all of the what Noah built, it was 437 feet by uh, 75 plus feet by 44 feet high. It was just a chest. And it was, uh, they used, he told them the, the wood he had to use. And then he had to tar it inside and out. And it just said he did, he did just so. He did exactly what uh, God asked him to do. And it was three floors. And it, di it didn't have a rudder. It was just this black box with tar on the outside and tar on the inside and a, and a pitch roof and some windows way at the top and a door on the side. Where when you see a picture of it, it's always a boat, like it's heading somewhere. It, my know? in my children's Bible, when I was five or six, it was a big boat. And yeah, it, where was it going? It just needed to stay afloat. By by the way, it it was uh, half the size of the Queen Mary, but it had one third more space because it was this square box, and it had three floors. And it had this door on the side, and Adam or, or Noah didn't collect the animals. God brought the animals that he wanted in there, and the pairs that he brought, and he brought uh, seven extra for domestic and that sort of thing. And uh, they, it says they went in willingly. You know, you would think that he'd had to coerce them and take a stick and beat on them. No, he brought them in there. And then some think that. Maybe uh, God allowed, you know, like, for instance, uh, a sleep to go over them or to be calm and to, and to uh, just rest in there. Uh, some, uh, some animals hibernate like bears. Uh, so who knows? But anyway, uh, the, when I was studying all this, it had all the animals that were uh, bigger than a dog, smaller than a, a mouse, uh, and then you had insects. Was, if there was 1.4 million species, insects make up 60% of that. And all of those were led by God into the ark. Noah didn't have to go and corral them and move them in. I read somewhere that if we look at our understanding of nature today and estimated what it would take to have between two and seven of the types of animals, that it would have required a boat or a what did you call it? A, a box? A chest. A, yeah, chest? a chest. A chest. A box. Roughly eight to ten times the size of the USS Nimitz. This I don't know. All I know is it had 1,400,000 cubic feet of space and something and three like, levels. Yeah, three levels in there. And uh, there was they had to store the food for these animals. Uh, some of the animals probably could live off the feces, certainly the insects off the feces from the animals. Uh, then you, everything that I had read was how many were divided, who, how many were larger than a horse, smaller than a horse. It was amazing the knowledge that's out there. That if you, if you, and, and the, then the, the it's not a, a myth or a, or a, a fairy tale. Uh, Jesus talks about Noah in the time of the end and and how the people would be in the same that they would be today, eating, drinking, not taking any note. But what would you say to most people who would disagree with you and say that it is a myth or a fairy tale? So, so here's one thing. I would thing. say study. So <laughs> that's between, what I would tell anybody. Between to study. nineteen, you know, from nineteen seventy up until the early eighties, probably around forty-four percent of Americans—I'm not talking world Christians of Americans—believe that the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, was the literal literal word of God. By two thousand seventeen, that had dropped to twenty-four percent. 
And if you only polled those with at least a college education, it dropped to 13%. And this decline is goes back from around the 1940s, which is around 73% were a member of some kind of church and a much higher percentage than the 44% believed it was the literal, literal word of God. That has been in significant decline over the last... But conversely, those people haven't become agnostics or atheists that have gone away. The numbers are almost exactly in inverse proportion of those who think that the, specifically the Old Testament, not necessarily the New Testament, specifically the Old Testament, was more apocryphal myths, maybe God-inspired and meant to give us lessons that led into the New Testament, um, but not to be taken as a literal act. I've said before, and you and I have exchanged it uh, as touches a couple times, is and Carl Sagan said it is extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, and uh, and specifically in the case of of the of the flood myth, or I'm sorry, of of the the verses related to Noah. There is, as far as I know, no evidence whatsoever except for what was written, or am I not understanding? So it's it's kind of hard to there say. There may be there may be ge- geographical evidence that there was a flood. I mean, not necessarily that there oh, was a chest. So but- we've talked about this, but. I believe in the last, say, 10,000 years, yeah. there have been thousands of floods. Mm-hmm. Floods happen all the time, especially if you look at some of the biggest floods, like when the Black Sea formed. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, that land went away. Entire civilizations were wiped out. To the people that were there, that was a world event. Yes, there were that was no, their world. There were no global communications or understanding of the scope and the size uh, of the world. So that would have been, the world has been devastated. Uh, we somehow survived. We must be the last humans because I look all around in 360 degrees and I don't see anybody else in sight. Just a matter of scale. Now, there isn't any evidence of a global flood. And in fact, in some of the times in where in the rough timing of the global flood, there were civilizations that we know from secular history that existed at that time, and there is no evidence in their history that a flood occurred in their location at the times when the flood of the Old Testament would have taken place. So this is where we struggle on, is this a, and I don't like the word fairy tale. Um, you know, fairy tale is story? Know, Brothers Grimm or Mother's story okay. or something, but more of, a, of an apocryphal story that is meant to inspire based on the Word of God. That I could almost buy. I can understand exactly what you're saying, and I can, I can see exactly how people that have somebody stand up at a pulpit with their collar turned around telling them what this is about or what that is, you know, getting pushing that away in their mind, going, I don't, I don't buy this anymore or whatever, uh, his opinions or whatever it may be. I think for Moses to write all this down, it's pretty amazing exactly what the Bible says, and then you see what, how man's interpreted that with everybody has a boat or whatever. You know, so I would just suggest there's plenty of knowledge out there to to gain. There's plenty of writers that have talked about it. And uh, when I was doing the research, I was seeing how many animals were uh, larger than a horse, how many animals, were in, and just everything that had to do and could that have hold held the uh, the animals and done that. And it, it was amazing. It's, it says that Noah did just so. Now, let's 
take the Hebrew Aramic scriptures, commonly known uh, to most people as the Old Testament, mm -hmm. but I call them the Hebrew Aramic scriptures because that's what they were. That was the only Bible Jesus had. Uh, Jesus knew that Bible backwards and forwards, and he <clears throat> certainly believed in Noah. He certainly believed in the flood. So, How do we know that? Uh, he talks about it. He, in fact, it's in my book. He talks about just as it was in the day of Noah, so too the Son of Man. People were eating and drinking. Men were being given in marriage. And they took no note until Noah entered the ark and the floodwaters came and washed them away. Off the top of your head, do you have like a maybe a scriptural uh, reference? I'm oh, going yeah. to find it for you. Oh, okay, Google, cool. Google, Google, yeah, he's looking at a book right Google now. Google will tell us. Yeah. yeah. You know, this, <laughs> this is exactly the kind of things that I needed to have in my brain, but, you know. No, no, no. no it's I, fine. We knew that going in. We yeah. knew we were going to talk for a few hours. There's no way we can have everything scripted. We're going to, we're going to bounce all over the place. So it's... And it, um, maybe uh, it, Matthew, Matthew 24, 38 and 39, do you want to look those up? No, no, no. I'm going to look I, them up. I'm, we, we I'm writing everything down here, 38 and 39. This is Jesus speaking, and he's saying they were doing the ordinary things of life, such as eating and drinking, men marrying, women being given into marriage, and they took no note, and the floodwaters came and swept them all away. So they were being human. And he was saying that this is what it's going to be like at our time. People are just going to be doing the ordinary things of life, saying, ah, it's always been this way, or it's whatever. You know, I, I'm, that's one of the big reasons I wrote the book is to get people to start questioning the Bible, start looking into it. I, and I, I wouldn't even doubt you on that. I, I, there, there's no way I could debate that or argue that. It would be, um, I would not be surprised at all if it was something that came along. I would probably, you know, you and I might be sitting on the beach watching the asteroid come down, debating on whether God sent it or the universe sent it. But, you know, it, it could happen at any given time. We've, we've gone through, I, I believe, through our history, five significant extinction-level events, not as a, as a human species, but as life on this planet. You just uh, reminded me of a Gary Larson joke where there's two guys recuperating at a hospital in wheelchairs and they're bandaged from head and toe. And he goes, and behind them is this fire meteor coming right down at him. And he goes, ah, what's the chance of that happening? I was struck with lightning too. <laughs> now who's not taking <laughs> note? I love, I love Gary Larson. Yeah, the yeah. far side, the far side is missed in, yeah, in this so. house. <laughs> there you go. Anyway, so, uh, your questions are great. And uh, those are the same questions that, that people have brought up. And even I uh, had doubts about all of this stuff. And uh, it was until uh, we were going to have this podcast and we were going to talk about my book that I decided that I'd really get in and start having some ammunition, <laughs> get, try, to, try to remember the scriptures, try to get the, the information. So I want, to write, I want to read you something, and it's something that I had actually said decades ago when I first started. I was, I was in my probably mid to late 20s when I... I grew up in a, in a household that was um, part Catholic, part Pentecostal, which meant we had a lot of dysfunctional alcoholics in our family. <laughs> but, but we... The one thing you can thank him for. Exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, but, but when I, when I got w into my mid to late 20s is when I really, you know, when I was in my late teens, I started to doubt. But when I was, even when I was in the military, I had talked to some of my closer friends. I had thought sometimes about possibly 
a life in the future of you know going to seminary. So I I wasn't leaning towards agnosticism at that time. But as I got into my late twenties, I I did. And one of the things man-made religion was one of as you said, and I put man-made in quotes. Uh, so I, I wrote down some of the thoughts I had said years ago, and it was this is the conundrum that I see with the conversation that we've had on you know just read the scripture. And what I said was that man-made religion, my, my original terms was organized religion. So I'll say organized religion will unavoidably form and flourish in any environment or culture where a holy text of any form exists. And it will be fundamentally necessary for explaining and propagating the meaning, the understanding, and subsequent belief in that text and also for defending the belief in that text against others from outside of that culture that have different beliefs. One of my purposes in life is to question myself daily and to challenge my own beliefs. But this is one that's, that's rooted hard in, in, in my brain right now is I firmly believe that it doesn't matter what the holy text is, some form of organized religion or man-made religion will have to follow. It's unavoidable in order to explain the text, to propagate the meaning and the belief in, and to defend the belief in that text over other texts or similar texts, uh, you know, different translations or different versions of that text. So I absolutely appreciate that you, you know, you, you and I are in lockstep with our skepticism over organized religion. But if there is a holy text or a scriptures, I don't see how it's avoidable. Well, I tell people, you know, people want to interpret the Bible for you. That guy that stands up there with his collar turned around backwards and he's telling you what this says or what that says, and he starts that sentence off with, I believe God does this or does that. And that's exactly what I'm trying to get people to read it for themselves. Don't take that word from that person. And that's exactly why I think you're not the only one, Doug, that, that has that skepticism. I mean, when you when you think about... 200,000 so-called Christian religions, and they're all saying that they have the Bible as the crux of their religion, yet they're all teaching different man-made doctrines. Something's not right. You know, Christopher was correct in chiding these people and showing, you know, the the difference in what they're, what they're saying, and uh, it's not what the Bible teaches. And that's what I'm trying to do with my book, is to take those things that he's been taught I don't want to down any religion out there. I just want people to see what the Bible has to say, and then they could look around and see if this is the truth or if it's not the truth. And uh, uh, it's like, just like we were talking about, Jesus only had the Hebrew Aramaic scriptures. And in that, he's quoted as talking about Noah quite a bit. And uh, I think other other so-called, what they would say is a myth. Uh, so it... It, it's not surprising that you have all the the controversy out there and that you're thinking in your mind, you know, who is correct? What is this? You know, they're making up stuff out of out of this stuff. Well, I, I try to tell people to let the Bible interpret itself. Take, like, for instance, let's take um, the Garden of Eden and uh, this angelic creature using the serpent to talk to Eve and, and get her into um, taking from this tree, disobeying God. He asked her, is it true that you're not to eat from uh, all these different trees in the garden? And then that's to let you know how she knew that Adam had told her. No, all the uh, 
trees in the garden we can eat. It's just this one that we can't eat from. Well, wasn't there two? There was the tree of knowledge and the tree of life? Yeah, there was a, tr a tree that represented the tree of life, and there's a tree of knowledge. But of, only the tree... They only ate from the tree that of, he, of he commanded them not to eat from. The tree of knowledge. Yeah. Okay. Uh, of good and bad. They were saying, look, we don't need you. We can determine it on our own. We, we don't need you any longer. So uh, that's what this angelic creature was seeing, the worship from man going to God, and he started envying that, and he was drawn out and enticed by his own desire. That's what James talks about, uh, that don't say you're being tried by God, you're being tried by your own desires. And you're, you know, when those desires are fertile, it gives forth to sin. And that's what Satan did. He, he dwelt on that and wanted that worship for himself, and that's the reason that he did this. And then he... Um, he used to be able to go right into heaven. Job talks about him going right into where God dwells and station himself. So we have those insights as we go along and we read. It just, today you have the knowledge. Get a good Bible. Of course, buy my book. Oh, yeah, you got to buy the book. <laughs> yeah. I did, I, I did, and I didn't say that, and I was, I was negligent in not doing so, and I apologize um, because I, you know, Christopher Hitchens' book, God is Not Great, is one of my favorite books. It's just... It's, it's one of my favorites it, as It's well. a captivating book. He's got so much experience, and that's what I think I love. And, and He answers your question, too, Doug, of why why you can't put your faith in any religion. I, I, yes, he answered my question, but I was I wanted to get your opinion on it, which is, which is you know, it was... Oh, but, uh, but, but your book, I, I very much enjoyed reading that as well. And I did when I read yours, I had his right next to me. And I think as you see through, you know, at least the first portion of it, I have a lot of notes and bent pages, and then the rest of them kind of carried over onto these pages here. Yeah, I was looking at that. And but when we were speaking, like there's been things and there's underlying deals here. So I thought that was really great. And, and that's what I want people to do also. I want them to get their Bible, maybe uh, see what Jason says is probably the best uh, translation to read from. Get that and the book and start in gaining the, the real knowledge, the true life. And this is some of the struggles that I, you know, I have with even considering the Bible being the, the literal word of God is... Is you know, everybody and Chris Chris kind of hinted or didn't hint? He touched upon this. You know, if you have a hundred people that read the exact same article, they're going to come away with probably a dozen different opinions on exactly what that article was trying to convey, and timelines, and meanings, and interpretations. So there's subjectivity involved, and um, how how is that? Uh, so one of the, you're, you're reminding me of one of my favorite philosophers' quotes. Do you know who uh, uh, George Barclay is? I know, I know of George Barclay. I haven't done a lot of reading of him, though. Okay, well, it, one of his quotes, and I just think it's great. He says, few men think, but every man has an opinion. It, right. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. It's true. But, but no, I, this is something where you and I, just on one verse, and I'm... It, uh, we went back and forth, I think, on four, th two emails each on Hebrews 111, Hebrews just 11. on faith. So oh, faith. Yeah, just, okay. Just the, the one on, just the one on faith. And I pulled, I think, 12 different verses uh, from 12 different Bibles, and I specifically highlighted four of them. There were two 
which I could almost buy into. And it said that, uh, I, I think I wrote it down. Hold on. I, I apologize for the crinkling papers to the tens and tens of listeners that, that we have out there. I, um, I quote that scripture in the book also. Yeah, yes. And, and it's, um, damn it, I can't find it now. It's not like, it's not like that. Look I have for that, that and I'll, I'll bring up this little in topic, I guess. But you guys remember playing the telephone game when you were kids? That's exa- that. Yes. You know, it where uh, it was a game where a bunch of kids would get lined up in, like, say, a line of 10. And then one kid would get told like a sentence by their teacher or their daycare person or I something. It was like a lot of channels. A lot of people have done it. Yeah. At the end, it's not even and, the same. I, I yeah. They say like the cat with my son. Yeah. They say the cat is red. And then by the end of it, it's like, well, the queen stage. Mary sunk. And then it's this whole long saga that is totally <laughs> they, changed. They led the cat. Yeah. <laughs> so this well, one. So it's like almost like, you know, how, how do you reverse engineer all this chatter? You know, how do you really find the source of the information? And that was my question earlier on who's the arbiter of, of the, of the right verse or the right translation. And this was, this was my notes on, on, it was Hebrews 11, one. I apologize. I had that backwards. Hebrews 11, one. Yeah, it was Hebrews 11, one. So the, the King, definition of faith, the King James version says now faith is the substance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen. I could almost buy into that. And the NASB, is that the, the New American Standard Bible? Yeah, yeah, what does it say? It says, now faith is the certainty of things hoped for. It's stronger. It says the proof of things not seen. So yeah. here, here's me being pedantic. Evidence and proof are good, but it doesn't tell you what construes evidence or proof. And the word seen, does that mean physically see? that we see it with our eyes, or does it mean seen as understand? Because there, there's a couple meanings there. But then if I go to the ESV and the NIV... Yeah, I think we both agree that that wasn't those weren't really good text. Right, because that one says, so the ESV, for example, says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And the, and the NIV says, the assurance about what we do not see. So... You know, when you start, this is where we got into the long conversation about subjective hope versus objective hope. And it's, you know, we all have hopes and just because we hope something is true doesn't mean we need to, we should believe that it's true. So, so this is where I get into the... I address this in the book. I want people to read this. But one of the things I, I said in there, given in an analogy, that if... An analogy of that text, uh, the evident demonstration of a reality, though not beheld. You're in your living room, you have double pane glass, you're looking out the window, and bushes are leaning over, papers are blowing I down the street, this. And, and there's a woman holding a hat to her head and her skirt down, and she's walking along the street. You're in your house, you're warm, there is no wind, you don't hear anything, you're just seeing that. It's, it's something you're observing. And in your mind, it's enough to convince you that, hey, I better take a coat if I'm leaving today. It's, it's windy out there. It's, it looks like a windy day. You can't see the wind. You just see the effects of it. And that's enough for you to, be, to have that shared expectation, the evident demonstration of reality that will not be held. You didn't, you're not beholding any wind. No, but you're just talking about circumstantial evidence. Well, it's enough for you to have faith that it's a windy day. Well, so you're not going to go out there without your without your coat. So that serves as kind of like a analogy for faith. 
faith is, is, you have to have faith to please God. But you know what? It takes just as much faith to believe in other things as well. I mean, just about anything that you and I talk about, I always have to end up with maybe. Maybe that's true. I think know? it was John Lennox. <laughs> I think it was John Lennox in an interview with, with uh, Richard Dawkins. And I, I have to say that was one where he scored points because he, he told Richard Dawkins that he was a man of faith also. And he's like, well, no, I'm not. And he's like, well, you have faith in atheism. Yeah, you have it's faith a, in 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 uh, evolution. You have, you have faith, faith in, in evolution. Yeah, you have faith there's some in, big you know, gaps there. Yeah, yeah, but then this goes into, and I, I mean, we talked about this. We we spent a lot of time in our last episode talking about uh, subjective truth versus objective truth, and and you and I, we, uh, James, we discussed that, and and I substituted the words uh, faith and hope for truth, and saying we can have subjective faith and objective faith. So it really doesn't matter. But this leads to all the ambiguities, and but I, you know, one thing I want to get to is we we're a new podcast, and we we do have members. Um, that actually for the first time have submitted questions. So I'd like, cause we're having, I don't know if you know it or not, we've been talking for an hour and 20 minutes. We're so, just a couple of long-winded We are. Chris, you're no help there. You <laughs> so, just keep asking questions. So yeah. I suggest, <laughs> I suggest if, if maybe we take a five minute break, Let's uh, take one, pause yeah. it, and then we come back and I, I really would, uh, you like know, to get I, on the questions. Get on yeah, the members' questions here. Here. Sounds, touch on them. That sounds fantastic. Are you, are you okay? To, you still good to go? I am. I want I'm to having use a good re- time. I want to use the restroom. You can but use we the could just, All right. Yeah, I could use we more just water myself. We keep this going until one in the morning. Let me pause. Cool. This. <laughs> Let me see if this works. I'm gonna push. The, I'm gonna push this button. I don't know what it does. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Irrational Discourse Podcast. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes, you can send us an email at debate at irrationaldiscourse.com, or you can contact us directly through our website at www.irrationaldiscourse.com. Please include your name and location if you'd like a shout out for your contribution. We only ask for, and strive to give in return, a little love, acceptance, and mutual respect.